Today's Daily DVR dives into Watchmen is sponsored by our presenting sponsor, Cufflinks.com. Who's sponsoring this whole season? Go to Cufflinks.com slash DVR today. And this month, until the end of October, that's right, until Halloween, use code DCComics20 to save 20% off all DC Comics items. Go over to Cufflinks.com. Not only if you have an event coming up, But just if you want to look good when you walk outside in the morning. And they've got lots of cool geeky stuff. Game of Thrones, Marvel, DC, they got it. They've also got sports, NHL, NBA, NFL. Go to cufflinks.com slash DVR today. Use code DCComics20 and save 20% off. Do it. Welcome to Daily DVR Does Watchmen. My name is Axel and my co-host today and throughout the season is Roberto Suarez. Hello. Oh, there he is. Yes. Here I am. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. The voice we all know and love. Today we're going to be deep diving and taking some feedback on Watchmen Season 1, Episode 1. It's summer and we're running out of ice. Written, of course, by our showrunner and series creator Damon Lindelof and directed by Nicole Castle. Every week here on Daily DVR, we're going to bring you at least two Watchmen podcasts a week. Wednesday, I did a show with Aaron. You can go back and listen to that. And every Wednesday, we'll be doing a show. And Friday, that's today, we got Roberto. I might even throw in some initial reactions on Sunday. So check that feed. Let us know your thoughts. And please send us feedback at DVRpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find out about our other podcasts like Westworld Theorycast, Veronica Mars, Mindhunter, at dvrpodcast.com. Hey, before we get started, I do want to give a shout out to some of our friends. Uh, Jay and Jack, of course, of Lost Fame are doing a Watchmen podcast with Matt, Jay, Jack, and Matt. And Tower of Babel, Julian, uh, Daniel, I think actually it's Daniel doing it. Uh, They are doing a Watchmen podcast as well. So if you get a chance, look up those fellas. They're good guys. But Tonight, we have an even better guy. That's right. We got the best. How are you doing, Roberto? I'm doing good. I don't know. That's some uh, high company that you're talking about there. So I don't know that I would put myself in that level, but thank you so much. I'm a, I'm a big fan, of, of course, of you and of everybody else that you've mentioned there. So yeah, definitely go check them out. And thanks for having me as your co-host for the Deep Dive on Watchmen. Yeah, I'm so excited. You know, I'd already, Aaron and I had, we talked about when this was announced, we're like, we're we're doing a podcast. And then just a couple of weeks ago, you texted me. You're like, hey, are you doing a pod? You want to do a podcast? I'll watch me. I was like, I can't turn this down because whenever we've been together and doing these shows, it's been podcast gold. I enjoy so much working with you. So I said, let's do this show. We got a great show mapped out. And uh, I just think that it's going to be fantastic. And, you know, Aaron and I had a chance to talk about kind of our backgrounds with Damon and podcasting and stuff. So I want to give you a chance to tell everybody a bit about yourself in case they haven't heard about you before. Yeah. So I'm Roberto Suarez. I uh, started podcasting gosh, probably close to 10 years now. Started off with a Spartacus podcast back when that show was on the air. And then from there transitioned to do a Game of Thrones podcast called A Pot of Casts that uh, continues to this day, even though Game of Thrones is Thrones is over. I'm hoping that that show will continue uh, with the uh, with the new spinoff series uh, coming up, uh, as well as a, as well as a Westworld podcast. And I co-host those 
with my friends a proctor and john whitford um and uh and then from time to time just jump in on different little projects here and there i've done some audio uh work for some other uh podcasts uh and other um, online programs um as far as my history with uh other uh damon or with damon lindelof stuff i ne- i have never done a podcast about a damon lindelof show but i have followed a lot of his work i'm a big fan actually i i was a fan of lost uh probably until the last season i think the last season of lost lost me a little bit and uh it, it was a bit of a disappointing season for me but i did stick with that show from beginning to end i really enjoyed the leftovers uh didn't do any podcasts for that but it was a show that i discussed with friends and other fans of the show um and uh and then i have not been a super fan of some of his work in movies uh, i think people know that i'm not a big fan of prometheus which is a movie that uh <laughs> lindelof uh directed <laughs> or uh, wrote a few years back uh ridley scott directed it um but uh but i felt uh, especially with the leftovers that that lindelof i think was able to do in leftovers probably what he would have wanted to do with lost but because mm-hmm. lost was was in a network yep. um he was kind of you know still doing things old school like they needed to do a lot of filler episodes and have 20 plus episode seasons and i think with with uh, the the leftovers he was able to focus more on the story he wanted to tell and so i'm hopeful that what he's doing with Watchmen now, and it looks like from what we've seen in this first episode, kind of takes off from what he started with Leftovers. Yeah, well, I knew coming in that you had some issues with the end of Lost, Mm -hmm. and I thought that would be good because, you know, I mean, Aaron and I admittedly are kind of i don't want to say lost apologists or we're Mm -hmm. just super fans and we sometimes have blinders on and (laughs) i don't think it's i don't think it's unusual that that whole last season people had some issues with the end that's cool Mm -hmm. um and i think that's a good perspective that's something that i've always appreciated about you too is that you're an adult and have a have an even-handed attitude towards things you know yeah, I mean, and, and there's there's stuff that I like about that final season. I I just think that it what I where I see that I think Lindelof kind of course corrected with um, with leftovers as opposed to Lost is that I think Lost was still following the kind of old school model of TV, which was if the show is popular, you got to keep cranking episodes out. Definitely, and and I think you know when when the opportunity came later on to do leftovers, I think he had a very clear focus very clear vision of this is a story that's going to be told over three years it's going to be specifically you know we're going to there's a real there's a real uh uh, kind of a clean line throughout the entirety of leftovers which i don't think he was able to pull off in loss because of the how how shows were done at the time and also because he still was kind of up and coming at the time yeah. Um, so I think now that he has a little bit more maturity and more authority and is able to kind of call the shots a little bit better, he's able to kind of focus himself. And when he has a, a much clearer vision and a story that has a, a clear direction, which is something that is ex- kind of exciting about Watchmen as well. Uh, and we can talk about that a little bit more towards, uh, the news that we're going to talk about here in a second, um, that I think that leads to better product from him. Um, so that's uh yeah that's... 100% agree man i and and that's a great segue into mm-hmm. we're going to start off 
before we get into the episode and Roberto's general thoughts, and then we're going to dive deep into it, there's a couple little pieces of news, and I'm going to also put these in the show notes. So if you scroll down on your app, or if it says click for more, it'll bring you to our website, and you can read these and get these links. And uh, this is a Dark Horizons article, which is a great website that I've been going to actually for like 20 years. Oh, yeah. Guy in Australia does it. Yep, uh, yep. I think his name is Gareth. That's right. Um, and this is a quote from Damon. Um, I felt that if these nine episodes end, speaking about this season of Watchmen, without feeling like we completed a story in the same way that we feel that at the end of a season of Fargo or True Detective, you know, that it's not really Watchmen. It's just another continuing show where you have to come up with a cool cliffhanger for the finale. It's also not my story. I appropriated it. And so the idea that someone else could come along and do another season of Watchmen, that's really exciting to me, too. I would watch the fuck out of that. We can curse here. Uh, uh-huh. These nine episodes are sort of everything that I have to say at this point about Watchmen, and then we'll kind of go from there. And last episode, Aaron and I had talked a little bit about um, there was a thought it might just be one season. Now the idea is, oh, maybe Damon will just do one season and then hand it off and someone will come up with a new vision of Watchmen. And personally, I think that ties exactly into what you just said. And my feeling is, do I want him to do and commit to like three to six seasons of a show so I can get into it and follow it and have a big story? Yes. But also, like you said, he is always best when he can tell the story he wants to tell. Mm -hmm. So this little bit of kind of a little clickbaity-ish I'm fine with it. This doesn't really worry me at all. Yeah, and, and and it makes me think too. I mean, this is a property that you could approach from an anthology perspective. Yeah. Maybe this mm-hmm. first season is Lindelof and he gets to tell his nine episodes in the Watchmen universe. And maybe next season, somebody comes along and tells the story of Watchmen, but it's set during the time of the Minutemen and they do yeah. a nine episode run. You know, <laughs> yeah, that'd be you cool. could potentially yep. do something like that where you get different directors to spearhead different seasons and treat it more as an anthology with the visions of different directors telling stories in the Watchmen universe. That could be a really cool way to do it. Yeah. And, um, and that's something that's becoming popular. If you look at the terror, if you very look much at so. uh, Homecoming on Amazon, which was first mm-hmm. Sam Esmail, which who, who would be great at a season of Watchmen, who does right. Mr. Robot. Yeah. Um, I think it's a cool idea. And honestly, yeah. I mean, and it would I, be great for some of these creators who are like, yeah. I, I, I love the show. I don't want to commit myself to being the showrunner. But if I just do get to do nine episodes, I mean, you could bring so many different people to give their perspective. If the show is popular and and they can, you know, focus their uh, focus their attention for that, you know, nine hour run or whatever it is that they're going to be doing. Yeah, I'm totally open. And I love the fact some people might get upset. Oh, Damon's playing games. He talks, whatever. One thing. I learned about Damon Lindelof through loss, listening to the weekly official podcast where they always had this joke about podcasting with no pants on, which sounds kind of weird now, but it was <laughs> funny back then, um, is he is overly honest. This guy had to quit Twitter because he was talking back to people. You know, he reminds me a little bit of, I don't know if anyone follows David Simon, the creator of The Wire, who literally cannot not reply to someone if right. you if you ask david simon a question on twitter he will respond to you yeah in, like within 10 minutes so damon's kind of the same he talks a lot but he's honest so this yeah. was kind of a little thing 
but uh, I thought it was worth mentioning. Um, I'm going to put a little link to a men's health um, article, and they are tracking all of the soundtrack songs throughout the season. So you can kind of bookmark that. And as the season goes on, they're going to provide a video for everyone. And I do want to shout out, Aaron was correct. The song in the beginning of the episode is not from Kendrick Lamar. It's future. Ah. So I did want to correct myself on that. I really like the the score that a Trent Reznor oh, is uh, putting together for this. Yeah, I think that's really fantastic. And I, and I believe there's going to be a, a release of that upon the completion of the series. Yeah, they're do Actually, I think they're releasing like a three disc set. That's right. I saw something about that today. That's mm-hmm. another piece of news. And, and you know, we, uh, Heath and I are covering Mindhunter. We're almost done with the first season. We're going to take a break, come back in January, do the second. Oh, and awesome. they also score Mindhunter. Yeah. So you get with the great thing about Reznor and Atticus Ross is like, they'll just leave a lot of silence. And then all of a sudden, just a little noise, mm-hmm. you kind of hear it. I love it. Yeah. Um, another little piece of news. I put a link to PDpedia, which is kind of a, I don't know if it's an ARG, which they did during Lost and is not as popular now, but almost like a uh, like an online kind of game this is going to form into. But it's some files um, from a guy from a guy. Okay, his name uh, was Peter, and you may know a little bit about him. He's mentioned um, in a in the Watchmen comic and he is a FBI agent who is now been assigned to the technology bureau because there is the, we'll get into it as we talk about the show and people mention that there's a lack of technology in the Watchmen universe. And part of that is explained through these documents and how there was after Richard Nixon and everyone thought that Dr. Manhattan, everything he touched was giving people radiation and cancer. They basically, Robert Redford came in and recalled cell phones and all this technology. They kept some of it like the electric cars. Basically, you that's, that's one of the documents. There's, I think there's four documents that they provide there mm-hmm. that also go into um, the background of Ozymandias and what happened to him. Uh, it goes into a little bit of the of Rorschach's journal and how that's seen as a conspiracy theory within this world. So it's backstory. Some of it may be a little spoilerish. It may end up in the show. So if you're spoiler phobe completely, you may not want to read this, but I read some of it and I found it to be an additive to the experience. Yeah, I mean, and this is this is not atypical for HBO. They they do a lot of this with Westworld as well, where it's basically supplemental material that, on the one hand, serves as kind of a viral slash marketing to the hardcore fans who want to delve deeper into the universe. So they drop these, uh, you know, supposedly in this case, these are the files of FBI agent Dale Petey, who is a, yeah. a character in the series uh, who keeps track of information that you know we we are privy to see outside of the context of the actual series. It's not necessary to follow the series, the same as if you were to go into the Delos Archives website where you can see all the stuff that they do supplementally (laughs) for Westworld. But 
it helps enrich the experience, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, the the the, the here it, it it's not a, it's not that different from something like Star Wars Expanded Universe or the many novels and comic books that exist in the world of Star Trek, where most people follow the Star Trek TV series or the Star or most people follow the Star Wars movies. But if you want to get deeper into the lore and all that stuff, then you can kind of go into look into their expand respective expanded universes. Yeah. So this is kind of part of that. I think it's also a bit of a nod to the original graphic novel, because in the graphic novel, at the end of every chapter, you typically had something that was not part of the story, but that again added some flavor and character to the story. It would either be a, a chapter from a book um uh, you know, written at the time about superheroes or an article from a newspaper. So those kinds of things, you didn't necessarily have to read them as part of the ongoing comic book. But if you did, it kind of gave you a richer context for what you were doing. So I think it kind of also pays homage to that kind of stuff. Definitely. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's fun. And me as like a, I always get worried, oh, is it going to be spoiling or something? I don't think so. I think that this, again, you may find, you know, in episode four, oh, that was mentioned and, and, you know, they, then Mm -hmm. they confirm it in the show, but this is supposed to be stuff that exists as canon within the world of this season of the Watchmen. And it might also serve as a way to fill in for folks who have never read the book, who want to maybe kind of get caught up on what the current status of history in this alternate world is um, without having to invest in in reading the the graphic novel. Yeah. And nerdy people like us who have a break in the day and like, Ooh, let me read some kind of weird fake alternate history document on HBO. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and HBO uh, loves those clicks and knows that people are going to be talking about it. It's all about the marketing baby. <laughs> that is the truth. So I included a link to that directly. And then an article, um, uh, from Polygon and the Nerdist. And the Nerdist one talks more about the no technology thing, which is kind of interesting. And I, it sounds like something that they're definitely going to have to mention in the show. But this is yep. all so fun. And it does lead you down rabbit holes, too, of some of the other backstories that were and that material, that bonus material that you mentioned from the comic. Yeah. So it is kind of fun. All right. That's all the news we got. Um, let's talk Watchmen. Uh, yeah. Everybody's heard my first impression of the show and Aaron and I talk. So I'd love to just give you the floor and you know, kind of give us your first impressions, how you felt watching it. It is, after yeah. all, the pilot, what your mm-hmm. expectations were and, and how you feel now. Yeah. I mean, I, I was very impressed with this pilot and I was very um, uh it felt it felt very well realized uh, the establishing of the universe. Now, granted, I have a lot of background because I have read the graphic novel uh, multiple times and have, um, uh, you know, been a fan of the property. So um, it's it's very possible that for folks like us who have that context, it's much easier to get into this universe than it may be for somebody who who was not. So, um, but personally, I just felt it was a very satisfying. Uh, introduction to this to this universe um and uh what i'm going to do is just kind of kind of go chronologically through some of the aspects of the show and then kind of bring up some points and let you kind of chime in on that as well so um the uh, i thought that you know the setup at the beginning with the uh tulsa oklahoma in 1921 as we have this young child watching the movie about the black marshal of oklahoma bass reeves um, this all basically kind of sets up part of the history that we don't know about in the world of Watchmen. You know, we, we, this is a, a period of time 
that hasn't been covered in the graphic novel. So I think it was kind of interesting to kind of see this part of history. And this is a, a, a part of history that has not diverged from our own, in which this is an actual event that happened, the Black uh, Wall Street Massacre uh, in 1921. And then this child escaping with the little baby girl, uh, that's a fictionalized piece that plays into the Watchmen universe, but we're using a, the context of a historical event, which in many ways kind of mirrors the Vietnam War in the original mm -hmm. graphic novel, that that was kind of a, a key element that played into the history of that text and the, and the emergence of heroes and, and how history diverged at that point because of the outcome of the Vietnam War with uh, with the presence of heroes, especially Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, definitely. And I, 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 I think that's a great point, the way that the comic specifically used events mm -hmm. that were real to yeah. ground your emotion in it and, and, and get that connection. And yeah. Damon does the same thing here. And just the little touches that they add, how mm -hmm. they were flying over in planes and shooting, yeah. which actually did happen. Right. They took real points and put them in there. Um, yeah. I read a little something about even that little part with the piano in the street mm -hmm. or something. There was some report of somebody like playing music in the street. Like it was supposed to be that juxtapositioning of what's happening and also what we saw in the theater uh -huh. as well. So, um, yeah, that was great. And the the opening stuff with Bass Reeves – uh, what a what a great feeling of that kind of it reminds you of the comic too when yeah. they show you the pictures of the original crew right, right. and right. kind of the old timey film aspect mm -hmm. of it I love that yeah and and the director of the film even though this this is a fictional film the director of the of the serial film about uh, Bass Reeves it was a real uh, African American director who did serials specifically for the Afro-American community uh, of the time. So they, they, they are taking uh, historical, uh, actual historical events and people and place them in, within this fictionalized context. And so I think we begin to see in this first uh, uh, introduction in the episode uh, that we're going to be following as we go along a very similar opening structure here to the opening structure of the original graphic novel. You know, in the original graphic novel, we have uh, certain events, and I'll, we'll talk about them a little bit later as we get to the end of this, of this uh, 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 recap and information here. But um, the, the, uh, the, the idea of a historical event being used to set up the emergence of a potential heroic character is very similar to the events of Vietnam being used to kind of set up the uh, life of both the comedian, but more, and, and also of Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. And then, definitely. and in the same way as the effect of having Dr. Manhattan in Vietnam sent the world of Watchmen into a completely, you know, divergent path when it comes to the history of the United States here, what we're possibly seeing and I'm possibly because we're speculating at this point is the emergence of the first possible hero because of the events of the Tulsa, uh, uh, riots because uh, one of the big questions that i have coming out of here is could the young boy who was inspired by watching these movies and also by the events that he survived could he possibly be the original hero uh, an, a hero named hooded justice who actually is referenced multiple times in this episode and who in the original graphic novel hooded justice was known as the first superhero 
And we also happen to know from the history of the graphic novel that he was a superhero that after he grew old or died or disappeared, nobody ever knew his true identity. So um, we could be seeing here, you know, similarly to how things kind of got twisted in Vietnam because of Dr. Manhattan, uh, we could be seeing here how things could have changed in 1921 and created the pathway for superheroes to emerge in this world. Yes. And that's, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I had had the theory that um, maybe, maybe he's not hooded justice, but maybe becomes the real first superhero. Right. As we find, so, and so much of this show is about conspiracy theories and hidden histories, mm -hmm. right? And, and legacies, you know, yes. and, and even within yeah. in the first graphic novel, we know of multiple versions of the same hero. So maybe this was the mm. first person who took to, who took on the hooded justice mantle, but then later on, other people took on the mantle as well. Yeah, and then, um, and so then there's it, all these possibilities of what that could be. And then if it does turn out, and because of the note we have here that we see where he says, you know, take care of this boy. And then mm -hmm. Lewis Gossett watch, more specifically, okay. it's watch over watch. this boy. Yeah, I got this wrong <laughs> last time too. Watch over this boy, which is important. Watch. Yeah. Um, who and I had pointed out too how the boy, if the boy does become a watchman, but also ends up watching the watchman because mm -hmm. we have yeah. him watching Angela. Right. Um, but is that possible? Like you said, that's great. Like maybe he was the first hooded justice and had a, maybe they had like an all black superhero crew, but that crew that was lost to the, to the history. Right. Right. And we fought and this show is bringing that out. And cause I think one of the things when Damon says about remixing, I think what he also means is doing to the watchman, what watchmen did to our, American history, yeah. creating an alternate history that's just as real, but now it's different from what we know from the comic book, because then right. the comic book becomes our our history that we all assume is real. But then also so much of the comic book is based on Rorschach's journal. Mm -hmm. And so what are our sources? And then in this show itself, Rorschach's journal is twisted and used by white supremacists for another purpose. So it's really playing with these themes, which mm -hmm. I find so interesting right off the bat. It makes you think about not only the show, but how history plays out. Now, did you notice the letter part that I mentioned? The letter, the letter that the boy receives? Yes. What so I, I remember the note being written, but was there something? It as, was uh, in it was in Louis Gossett Jr.'s hand while uh -huh, he's sitting right. underneath um, Judd being yes. hung. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which again, this leads to the speculation of then is the Louis Gossett Jr. character in present time this same boy or a descendant of this boy, uh, and possibly could if he was a hero, could he have been one of the first heroes as well? Yeah. So that's a good point to transition here to talk about kind of where things move forward, because then the, the show picks up in modern time, or I should say in the present day, September 2019, but in these in this alternate uh, world of Watchmen. And you mentioned the white supremacist group, the 7th Cavalry, which is an interesting group that it appears to have emerged in the wake of this alternate history, uh, who has taken uh Rorschach a character again from the original graphic novel as its uh kind of messianic figure for lack of a better term they're the uh and and 
probably because of his writings and because of some of the conspiracy that his that his writings uncovered at the end of the original graphic novel, um, these folks have embraced some of those beliefs. Uh, uh, probably with that tied in some of their own beliefs as well, especially when it comes to race and uh, mm-hmm. and supremacy, and that kind of created this group called the Seventh Cavalry. And so, uh, our first encounter with them, of course, is a really interesting encounter with a police officer named Sutton, who pulls over this member of the, of the Seventh Cavalry, uh, and he is shot uh, but not killed by the 7th Cavalry member, he ends up hospitalized. But I think some of the interesting pieces here is, first of all, we see the policemen are wearing masks, uh, which this serves as a kind of a counterpoint to the uh, the, the world of the Watchmen in the comic book uh, in the 70s and 80s, where masks, vigilantes were illegal. Yes. Uh, only a few were allowed to operate under government control, uh, such as Dr. Manhattan, the comedian, but for the most part, vigilantism had been declared illegal. Now, not only is vigilantism legal, it's the law. I mean, the, the, the actual officers of the law operate behind masks. Yeah, that's an important, that's something we were talking about before. And as I was watching, and as we see later too, how they're in the assembled police, with the assembled police, mm-hmm. um, that that is an important distinction yeah. Because it also falls in line with the way we've seen a reversal of policy yeah. from Nixon to Redford. Right. right. One thing so, I did want to mention, interject yeah. when you mentioned Rorschach's journal, just to kind of um, pin that down. Let's remember that he sent that journal away in the comic before he went to Antarctica Correct. and found out the true plan that Ozymandias laid out until it was kind of all explained. So it's interesting that the 7th Calvary know enough, but they don't actually know the total truth. That is something that we should, uh, and I I think I've been listening to some other pods, that's something that we should pinpoint and make clear, Mm -hmm. is that they don't know, for instance, that the squid was faked and all that. They have their conspiracies based on Rorschach's journal, but they don't know that. There's enough to piece some theory together, but they don't have the whole truth. So part of that is an interesting point when you say the way they turned it. Mm-hmm. Um, turned Rorschach's words, and also I think a lot of his anger mm-hmm. is what they latch on to. Yeah. But they had an opportunity to interject their own conspiracies because totally. it in itself was an open-ended conspiracy. It, it helps feed into their yeah. own conspiracy and into their own yeah. uh, mindset, right? So I think I've heard a lot of complaints from people saying, "Well, Rorschach was a hero; uh, he shouldn't have, you know, be now become the the spokesperson." Uh, or the symbol for a racist group. But I think the point is here is that his message has been twisted by yes, this. Group. Exactly. And, and granted, Rorschach was a hero, but he was he was really kind of more of a I mean, he, he was a psychopathic hero. Yes. Right. I mean, he had he had some real problems. Uh, there were he no heroes. Very, in the, he had a very yeah. strong nationalistic tendency. Yep. He was clearly homophobic. Uh, he never expressed any overt racism in, in the comic book, but he did have uh, a very strict moral code. And so it it's it doesn't it doesn't take that it's not that big of a leap to take a philosophy like that and use it to help support 
an agenda that's even more extreme, right? I mean, Definitely. heck, we see it every day with religious groups who, whether on the left or on the right, uh, can both see the message of Jesus supporting their point of view, right? Uh, you know, so we, we see that uh, we see that in religion all the time. Uh, yeah. So it's not it's it's not atypical to see it happening in a situation like this, especially when so much of it is tied into conspiracy theories, because it mm-hmm. that's a that's that tends to then feed in on itself. Yeah, and, um, and this and as you as you said, this is the story of so many political movements, social movements, where you find out when you do more research that's not exactly what. The person who they base it on said it was an interpretation, Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, and that's why I think a lot of the complaints and I have read some of them. Oh, this is going against Rorschach's a hero. Mm -hmm. Personally, I don't think there were any heroes in Watchmen. I think the point of Watchmen is that none of them were heroes, including Night Owl, who was more like a kind of almost... He avoided conflict mm-hmm. and and avoided doing something right. He was a good man, but he didn't stand up. And then others did such bad things. So I don't think it's fair. My interpretation would not to be call Rorschach a hero. He right. was perhaps our um, protagonist because we were following his journal and he was a detective, but it didn't make him a good man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he did, and 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 he may have done some good things, but he also did some bad things. I mean, he mm-hmm. he, he was a he was <laughs> a flawed human being. Yeah, I mean, brutal, that's what it yeah. came down to. And somebody who was also impacted by the events of his own life, which was a pretty dark and scary uh, upbringing. And there's a lot of that the, the novel goes into uh, showing us how he grew up and how that impacted the kind of person he became. So he's also a a, a, a result of his upbringing and of his of his situation in life so um so anyway uh we we do learn that the reason the police have adopted this vigilante persona uh now is because there there was an event in the past known as the white knight in which apparently the seventh cavalry targeted uh police officers and so becoming more like vigilante superheroes now serves as a way to protect the the police force which again really interesting juxtaposition to the uh the era of the graphic novel in which the idea was no masks now in order for the police to be able to function they have to wear masks but at the same time under what appears to be a very ultra liberal uh political system under president redford the police has to have an alibi the whole time they have to ask permission uh, when they uh, when they detain somebody and ask that uh, that the session be recorded, they have to get permission to be able to use their guns from a from a central dispatcher. So there's all these real interesting uh, uh, pieces that come into play uh, on what it would be like to have had a you know very liberal uh, governor or president over the course of these thirty years. Mm. Um, it's and like the police and, have been retrained. They've been retrained, you know, and 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 it and it kind of you know. I, I don't think Lindelof is taking a stand. I, I think he's just showing, you know, what a what potentially could be some of the consequences of taking on, mm-hmm. you know, certain positions uh, and seeing how that could either help or hinder in a future society. Um, I also, uh, you know, at, at the at, when you mentioned the the meeting with all of the police force, they've even adopted the motto 
who watches the watchman that's kind of like the words that they use uh when they close their meetings you know they say it in latin quit quis custodiet ipsos custodes which is uh, who watches the watchman and a phrase that is also uh reminiscent of what happened in the book but um here it's now being codified into being basically part of the official body of of the law of the criminal justice system. Which and is I barely... think that's so interesting too, Roberto, mm-hmm. because this speaks a lot to like the Orwellian doublespeak, the mm-hmm. idea of how important language is, even in our own political systems, like for instance, the way they call an estate tax, a death tax, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how this can sway people and the use of the Latin makes it sound ancient and important. Mm-hmm. When it's just a different language, <laughs> yeah. Well, and then and then it brings to question even the the police are trained in this universe to respect the importance of oversight over yes. themselves, yeah. right? Which is really interesting, right? Here, I mean, they know who the watchmen are; they are the watchmen. Yep. But then, there it is their duty not just to uphold their role as watchmen, but to uphold the the responsibility of being of of monitoring their activities yeah and it's who Uh, watches the watchmen their superiors each other and mm -hmm. the public society right yeah society at large which is Mm -hmm. in reverse to how we tend to see things yeah or 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 how people may even would say that the police operate in 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 our society right there there's people there's who would argue that the police have way too much control over their own, uh, uh, you know, authority, and that there should be more oversight, right? So here, this is the extreme where we have uh, the police promoting their own self oversight. So, yeah. um, and uh, so then, uh, speaking of police, there's a former police officer now, uh, Baker, named Angela, who is uh, happens to also be uh, operating as a undercover hero. Uh, sanctioned by the police under the name of Sister Knight, which is basically the most kick-ass nun uh, superhero that you, <laughs> you would ever find. Uh, she uses rosary beads, but not to pray, but rather to beat people up with. Um, and she is called into action in the middle of doing a parent's day at the school where she's talking to the children in her uh, own son's classroom. Um and she uh, is able to, uh, she, she goes to her bakery or a place where she works. And in a, in a scene that to me reminded me a little bit of the old Green Hornet TV yes, show. She Batman gets into this, this really kick-ass uh, black <laughs> continental type of yep. car. And the, and head, the top out. shot of the car peeling. It was totally yeah. overindulgent and completely reminiscent and an homage to early, uh, you know, superhero shows on TV. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Green Hornet, Batmobile, all of that stuff, right? Um, but uh, but she then heads to Nixonville, Nixonville Trailer Park, where she uh, finds there somebody uh, to question regarding this uh, this shooting attempt on this officer. Um, and we're introduced to yet another uh, one of these uh, policemen slash hero vigilantes, Looking Glass, who seems to be. Uh, kind of a counterpart in a way a little bit to Rorschach and who spends his time uh, doing the interrogations of suspects. Taking a little break to remind you to go to cufflinks.com. Go to cufflinks.com slash DVR today and use code DC comics 20 and save 20% off all DC comic stuff, man. I got an awesome Batman tie. I'm looking at it right now. 
That's right. Do it. Watchman, Batman, they got it all. Go over to cufflinks.com slash DVR today. Save 20% off on DC Comics. Use code DC Comics 20. You can also use our code DVR 20 at any time. Save 20% off. No minimum. Go over to cufflinks.com now. One of the best parts about podcasting is getting to know the listeners and making new friends. And one of those friends is Andy. You may have heard me mention him before on one of our many podcasts. And Andy and his wife, Claire, are looking to adopt. So if you or anybody you know is considering adoption for their baby, please consider the loving family of Andrew and Claire. They're a home study approved adoptive family of three living on a farm in southern Minnesota with a dog, Barney, and two turtles. They're able to adopt from anywhere in the United States and would love to answer any questions you may have. To learn more about them, check out their Facebook page at Andrew and Claire Adopt or on Instagram at Andrew underscore and underscore Claire underscore adopt. You can also email them at Andrew and Claire Adopt at gmail.com. So again, if you or anyone you know is considering adoption for their baby, reach out at andrewandclairadopt at gmail.com. Thanks. And again, we get we get a lot of in a, in short scene in the in these brief scenes, we get a lot of background history here. We see here, for example, uh posters in the classroom that talk about the anatomy of squids. Uh and later we have a a, a storm in which baby squid appear to be raining from the sky and falling onto uh, the, the alarm sound to warn people of the incoming uh, squid rains that happen. Um, and we learned that Angela was born in Vietnam, which if you have read the graphic novel, you'll learn that after the Vietnam War, which was single-handedly won by the U.S. due to Dr. Manhattan, um, the Vietnam has become a state of the United States of America. So Angela was born in the U.S., but in the state of Vietnam. Um, and then also under President Redford, uh, it appears that reparations have actually been put in place. And the way that they have been done so is by giving a lifetime tax exemption to the descendants of slaves. And so there is a lot of resentment among groups like the 7th Cavalry who resent these. And so the derogatory term for reparations is retfordations. Um, and the 7th Cavalry have also adopted uh, their, you know, like we said earlier, uh, because of all of this, uh, this is where Rorschach's kind of extremist views are used to justify the 7th Cavalry's uh, perspectives. Um, so a uh, little bit here to talk. I don't know. Did you get much of a chance in your in your earlier episode this week to talk about the whole squid thing and the conspiracy behind that? Yes. So we went okay. over that and explained how the uh, comic ends uh, mm-hmm. with Ozymandias creating this mutated psychic squid mm-hmm. that makes people go crazy and kills people, three million people in New York and it appears to be an attack from an alien interdimensional right. uh, race, but really it is him doing it to bring America and the Russians who are on the brink of World War III together right. against a common enemy. Now, right. And what, if you and if you read some of the PT, PD, uh, PD, uh, uh articles there, there's one in which you'll see that they yes. refer to, to the event as the DIE, the D-I-E, which is a... A dimensional um, interplanetary event, I think, is what it's called, or or 
or something. I can't remember what the what it means now. The DIE, the dimensional incursion event. That's what it what it means. And then they also refer to the squid as the EDB, E-D-B-E, which a lot of speculation online is that it it stands for extra dimensional biological entity, uh, so that the uh, the squid is perceived at least by the society at large to have been an some kind of alien attack either from another dimension or from another world and that was that's what Ozymandias had used to kind of bring about world peace uh with 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 an with a, an external enemy attacking earth Russia and the US put their differences aside and begin to work together in protecting the earth as one um and so that brings into question these squid storms that happen and we see that there's even like a there's even like a uh uh maintenance crews that are out and about cleaning up after squid rains happen are they a potential side effect of what Ozymandias did is it a continuation of Ozymandias plan um is it something that the government is aware of and if so does it play into the conspiracy well, theories there is that... a, there is a part i'm sorry to mm-hmm. interrupt but there is a part in in the uh pd uh journals here where they do say that they, at least in what we see here, there's no explanation. There's no explanation. The government has no explanation for right. why this occurs. And yeah. we had theorized, um, Bill Kava had written on our Facebook and had theorized perhaps that it's Dr. Manhattan did this mm-hmm. to keep the conspiracy up. What were your She's thoughts on it? Because this well, is like a mind bender at first. When it yeah. first happens, you're like, wait, that wasn't real. What's happening here? Right. Well, I mean, first of all, the first thing that we would say about a doc, a government document stating that they don't know what this is, is, well, can you even <laughs> trust the document? Right. I mean, uh, who that's watches the Watchmen, right? <laughs> yeah. That's why these documents are fun because exactly. the whole thing's so, based on conspiracies and lies. And so you can't trust any of it. So it's very possible that Veit disclosed this information to some higher up members of the government. He said, you know, from now on, you want to make sure that you do a little hint of squids every once in a while, just to keep (laughs) people in check, just to keep reminding people of what could happen. Right. So that's one possibility. It's also possible that Veit has somehow continued to do this. You know, he had he had the infrastructure to send one giant squid. Maybe he has the infrastructure to send occasional storms of baby squids once in a while to just keep people in check. Or it could be a unexpected side effect that he didn't even know about that by by doing this initial squid attack and whatever teleportation device to use. Maybe he opened up a rift in in time space and is causing these problems as an unexpected consequence. So who knows at this point what it could be? That is um, a great idea, Roberto. I had mm-hmm. not thought of that. That it, it because so much of the story is about the consequences of an action like this. Right. I mean, that's the basis of the whole leading up to the comic. That's the conspiracy mm-hmm. that we see in some of these documents too, and. Um, we obviously we see in the show that the results were it may have saved World War Three, but it didn't make America that much better in a sense that it's not at peace. You yeah. know, it's now caused a rift within itself. Yeah, um, and in the in the PDPedia documents too, it it explains that uh, Vates uh, Corp company almost went bankrupt, and part yes. of his original plan 
according to those documents, is that he was going to benefit in the aftermath of the squid attack by you know promoting all sorts of different types of technology to kind of move society forward. But in the aftermath of the squid attack, like you mentioned, uh, people became paranoid of technology. And so there was another unintended consequence that impacted his ability to kind of carry through his his vision the way that he thought it was going to go. Yes, uh, the Tech so. Recall and, and Reintroduction Act of 1993, mm-hmm. which granted the President of the United States authority to draft federal employees into the work of reintroducing technologies. Right. So after it happened in 85 or 86... Well, there's they a were, gap there between 85 yeah. and 93 where technology kind of took a took a pull back, a, a pull back or, or people just kind of became very distrustful. And it wasn't until the early 90s. So in a way, the world of Watchmen is a little bit behind our world when it comes to technological advancements. But ahead uh, in other ways, because in they other said ways. that some of them were safe. Like, yeah. you know, what what you what uh, drives the uh, electric cars and such, but they don't have cell phones and you mm-hmm. see they have better TVs, yeah. but other things are different. And that provides a great opportunity from a writing standpoint. Eliminating, eliminating cell phones is a dream for any writer these days. That's sure. why so many things are set in the past when they're horror stories. Like, sure. Because cell phones ruin the plot of everything. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm kind yeah, it's of interesting. Happy about it's, actually, that. it's actually a convention adopted even in the movie Blade Runner 2049, because when the original Blade Runner came out, there were no, the idea of cell phones wasn't really relevant. So the way that they approached the, the future of that film was let's continue down that line. There's no yeah. cell, there were no cell phones in 2019 in the Blade Runner universe. <laughs> There's no reason why we should have them in 2049 and use that to benefit the story. So. Uh, maybe we can do that in our reality. <laughs> do a little rescinding of, uh, of our technology. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so the information that is acquired from this uh, person that uh, is interrogated leads uh, Sister Knight and several of the other officers and hero uh, officer heroes to track down the 7th Cavalry cell. And this is at a, at a ranch where they're really well armed. We see also that the 7th Cavalry members are disassembling watches. And this plays into a lot of imagery from the original novel. Um, if you're familiar with the story of Dr. Manhattan, you know that he is the son of a watchmaker. And in the process of his own conversion into Dr. Manhattan, watches play a big role in his own kind of metaphorical understanding of space and time and we see watches being dismantled and rebuilt over and over again in a lot of imagery in the in the books so seeing these folks dismantling these watches definitely plays into that um we also see uh, another parallel to the original comic book in that the police use airships that are reminiscent of the ship night owl used in the 1970s in the world of the watchmen The the, uh, night owl had a ship called Archimedes, uh, named after the owl in from from Greek mythology, Athena's owl, I believe it was named Archimedes, Archie. And so this now technology has been uh, again interesting that the the technology developed originally by a vigilante superhero is now the standard technology used as a police patrol in the world of uh, modern day Watchmen. That's interesting that you saw it that way because I think it it had a lot of people thinking that was Archie and Mm – but I like the idea that you're thinking 
No, it's kind of handed down, and maybe there, maybe it's become a standardized it's vehicle. Become a standard, right? Sense. Yeah. So the the Archie technology is now the, the technology the police use like for that. the patrol. That's an interesting idea. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. What did you think about the batteries? Because it's mentioned later after mm-hmm. the dinner. Um, Angela and Judd talk about, she mentions there's, they've got a plan. There's something with those batteries. Right. And the mention of, with it, of course, Dr. Manhattan, did you have any ideas about what they might be doing with these batteries? I mean, they do mention that they're older batteries, that apparently there are some issues with them being potentially hazardous, right? So she mentioned something along the lines of a cancer bomb. Um, and Dr. Manhattan himself had been accused of causing cancer back in the day, uh, you know, with it, when it came to his proximity to other people. Um, and, and we know that the, the technology that they have that is based on Dr. Manhattan technology for things like electric cars and stuff uses something new and different. Um, so, so one piece that I keep coming back to, and maybe, maybe we'll, we'll touch upon it now, but we'll come back to it in the, in the final segment here as we, as we move away, as we finish up uh, this part of the story is could all of this stuff with the seventh cavalry be part of a new plan? Uh, uh, you know, could the seventh cavalry themselves not even know that they're potentially a pawn in somebody else's plan? Um, and uh, but I, I don't want I don't want to jump ahead of myself. Ooh, uh, I like but, this uh, idea. Yeah, but we'll we'll get to it oh. when we move into the into the next section here. Um, Can but I yeah, mention I, I, one thing about the batteries real quick? Yeah, go ahead. So in the comic, when we get to Antarctica, Doctor Manhattan, and a little bit earlier actually, Doctor Manhattan discovers that his powers are being lessened by i don't remember what they call it in the comic was it like tachyon or that's star trek maybe <laughs> but it was some, i don't know it was some it, kind of vate had been used well, vate had created some kind of a neutralizing thing. yes so mm-hmm. my question is because uh dr manhattan is the one um who eventually killed rorschach now, right. the Calvary doesn't know this because, of course, his journal had been sent before that. Yep. But if somehow they found out or there's a conspiracy or because Manhattan plays such a part in the journal, that could this be almost like his kryptonite? It could be. That's a very good idea. Maybe maybe they're planning some kind of a lure slash trap for Dr. Manhattan. Who yeah, knows? you'd think that he would be an ultimate goal of like – if he's the head of the conspiracy, like they think maybe they can take him down and true reality will be seen. Yeah. Very possible. Yeah. And that might play into what I have to say uh, about that in a moment here um, with a, with kind of a grander plan that may be emerging. Um, So, so anyway, so the, the, the seventh cavalry members are killed. And unfortunately they, even though they neutralized the threat, they don't uh, get get any more information. Uh, those that they didn't kill end up, uh, including the guy who had shot the police officer, uh, take a suicide pill and and, and uh, get away without revealing much more information. Um, and then towards the end of the episode, we have Angela and her family meeting at a dinner party at the home of the of Judd, the police chief, played by uh, by. Uh, um, Don Why Johnson. am I spacing? Don Johnson. I couldn't space on space on his name. Um, 
We see in a news article that Dr. Manhattan has been seen in, in Mars. We get multiple glimpses of hooded justice throughout this episode. We hear that there's a TV show happening on TV that is about the uh, the Minutemen and the the Golden Era uh, uh, heroes, and we see multiple shots of hooded justice in that. There was also a a moment when uh, Angela was interrogating the the or they had captured was hunting down the the one bad dude uh where a poster of hooded justice uh was uh actually no the posters was a dollar i think it was a poster of dollar bill which is another one of those early heroes um so there's definitely lots of glimpses back to these earlier era heroes yes and that um, interrogation scene we didn't talk too much about that yeah. inside the pod yeah, yeah, yeah. That was extremely interesting. What were some of your thoughts on that? Well, again, it kind of you you kind of get to learn there what are some of the talking points of the conspiracy theorists, right? I mean, because one of the things he asks about is, do you believe in the existence of, of extra dimensional beings? Uh, so we know that those are the kinds of things that play into the thinking of the folks in the Seventh Cavalry. Uh, it was very reminiscent, speaking of Blade Runner, again, it was kind of similar to the Voigtkampf test. He was measuring the the person's reaction uh, mm. to the information that he was giving them regarding all of these uh, potential hot button topics for conspiracy theorists. Yeah. And also the imagery being used. You know, there's images of Mount Rushmore with Nixon on it. Um, <laughs> there's images of the Rorschach ink plots. Uh, so there's all sorts of, of imagery being used uh, when he is asking these questions that play into what are more than likely uh, triggering points for the seven cavalry members. Yeah, there's shots of cowboys um, br uh, bringing up bass a little bit, maybe. Right. Uh, like what is American and what's not. American and I didn't catch flags. it, but I think somebody somebody mentions there's also some Im squid imagery in those yeah, uh, squids, in the images there's as well. The moon landing, which uh, some people think is a hoax. Right. Um, and a lot of other. It reminded me a bit of Clockwork Orange as well yeah. with uh, the way that the images kept on flashing and he'd repeat mm -hmm. the questions over and over. Very that, much so. That scene it has a lot in it, but I think overall it's really about the feeling and like what you're saying. It exposes the, by the questions he asked, we kind of learn what conspiracies they believe in. That's right. That's right. And this, uh, to go back to this dinner, this was a great uh, musical performance by Don Johnson. A nice I little know. song. I know. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of trivia there. You know, Don Johnson was in a show called Nash Bridges. And one of the writers of Nash, B yep. Nash Bridges was Damon Lindelof. And that's where not. he met Carlton Cuse. That's where they met. And yep. uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if that connection has continued through the years. And that's why they're collaborating now in, in Watchmen. So. Yeah. And, and Carlton Cuse's son, uh, well, they collaborated in Lost. And Carlton Cuse's son is a writer, was a writer on The Leftovers. Oh, and okay. he is a writer on Watchmen. Actually, he and Damon Lindelof wrote a film together called, uh, what was it? Uh, it was based on the old movie, um, what's that called again? The the uh, the Greatest Game or something. It's where people are hunting people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, and yeah. Uh, that was pulled from theaters uh, with some controversy. Oh, but they okay. worked yeah, yeah. together on that too. So yeah, this sure. has definitely got the lost vibes Mm -hmm. vibes going through it and i want to say when he started singing this song i don't know if i mentioned this on last pod but 
he uh, Heath had the same thought. I started feeling like he was going to die right from this point. Yeah. Well, and they had that ticking talk sound going on mm-hmm. right as the yeah, entire dinner team the whole kept going episode, on. That'll pop up here and there. You hear yeah. the sound. I keep hearing that ticking noise thinking that something's going to blow up any moment now. So um, so then he is, uh, uh, Judd is called after this dinner to go see Sutton at the hospital because he has, uh, he has recovered. And so, um, but he is uh, on his way there. His tires are, are blown up with a, with a, a, a chain, a one nail chain. And he, uh, ends up being captured and, uh, Angela is called by some mysterious man, which we find out is uh the, the wheelchair bound man portrayed by louis gossett jr who we speculate is he the young boy from the 1920s is he potentially a, a former hero maybe even hooded justice he had at one point earlier encountered angela as she entered her bakery and had asked her if she thought he could lift 200 pounds and lo and behold here he is standing next or sitting next to uh chief judd's body hanging from a tree uh, which makes you wonder, well, it, is, is this what he intended? Is he the person who killed Chief Judd here at the end of the episode? And if so, you know, what is his reason for doing this? And so, again, in a moment that in m- many ways parallels the first uh, kind of uh, some of the critical early events of the original graphic novel, what kind of starts us down the pathway of exploring the story in Watchmen is the death of the hero, the comedian, who very famously was killed, fell off a building, and his bat, his his emblem of a of a smiley face, uh, ends up on the ground with a splatter of blood on it, which has become kind of the quintessential uh, symbol of the Watchmen series. And here we have uh, kind of setting up what's going to be the the catalyst for this mystery that we'll cover now over the next eight episodes, the death of Chief Judd and on his sheriff's badge on the ground, uh, a drop of blood falls on it in a, in a way reminiscent to the blood falling on the smiley badge in, uh, in the original work. That, yeah. What a scene. That whole shot was great. I like the way that you bring up the idea that perhaps, um, it was Louis Gossett Jr. who did this or is involved in it in some yeah. way. I, mean, he I had, had not he, even considered that. He but. had asked Angela earlier, do you think I could live 200 pounds? And then, you know, I would oh, guess that Chief Judd yeah. possibly weighs around 200 pounds, right? So that, that I think, is part of the reason that, we, you know, it brings into question, did he have something to do with the lynching of, of Chief Judd? And if so, why? Um uh, uh, how does this play into whatever conspiracy is going on and Louis Gossett Jr.'s potential role in it or not? So, uh, but yeah, because he had asked that specific question of her earlier on. That is really interesting. I had yeah. I had only thought of that in reference to like, it is a double entendre in the sense then because when he says it then, it could be in reference to like a job application. You have to right. lift 50 pounds or something, but then you're right at the end here. That's so interesting. I hadn't picked mm-hmm. up on that. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we're going to be finding out more uh, in the weeks to come on that. Um, the other other kind of piece, that so that kind of covers the main crux of the story. Uh, we do get a glimpse into a different part of the world. In what I know, I know the, it, these these scenes were filmed in Wales. Whether or not they're actually happening in Wales, I'm not 100% clear on. But it's definitely 
another part of the world. It's not Tulsa, Oklahoma. And there we see a wealthy older gentleman who is celebrating an anniversary accompanied by two kind of odd servants. Um, and the servants give him a gift, which is a pocket watch. Once again, uh, playing homage, going back to the original Watchmen story, uh, because uh, John Osterman, who became Dr. Manhattan, was the son of a watchmaker, and he owned a pocket watch that actually was present at the time when he became Dr. Manhattan, when this nuclear reactor thing blew up and he was uh, he was pulverized and then reconstituted into Dr. Manhattan. Uh, this watch was there. It was kind of a price position that he had from his father. And this mystery gentleman also announces that he is writing a play that he wants the two servants to participate in. And the name of the play is The Watchmaker's Son. And uh, of course, there's a lot of speculation. Some people have even confirmed, even though I haven't seen anything myself, but there, there's even people confirming that the character here, played by Jeremy Irons, is uh, Adrian Veidt slash Ozymandias, who was also a former hero from the uh, era of the Crime Busters in the 1970s. He was an industrialist. Uh, he was the one behind the big plan uh, involving the squid. And according to the to the documentation, uh, supplemental documents in Pedipedia, he lost a lot, of, lost a fortune. Uh, in the aftermath of the squid attack, because things did not quite turn out the way he expected, where his industry would thrive in the uh, uh, introducing new technologies for people to cope with the uh, the attack, uh, the squid attack, uh, whereas people, at least for a period of about 10 years, uh, became very uh, suspicious of technology. And so mm -hmm. many of his industries failed. Um, and it was what 2000, it was 2007 in these documents too, that he disappeared and they were unable and he disappeared. to contact him when trying to sell his own company. Right. He and, became a recluse yeah. and he was, and, and in this episode earlier on, we also see a newspaper clipping saying Vate declared dead, yes. uh, kind of officially. So he has, and we know that's what kind of answers the question is like, why would he have to be declared dead? Because there were right. actually legal reasons behind it. So, so that his assets could be acquired by somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then there's this in interesting interaction with the servants that he has. They seem to be rather clumsy. Uh, cutting a cake and with a shoe with a shoe. Cu cutting a shoe a cake with a with a horseshoe. horseshoe and and the cake itself appears to not taste very good. Uh, there's speculation that maybe these could be androids or they could be synthetic beings. Uh, Osimandias himself had dealt in genetic engineering in the graphic novel. He had a, a giant lynx called Bubastis. That's right. Uh, so we know that he has dealt in genetic engineering. So maybe these are some kind of genetically engineered replicant type uh, servants that are going to then be part of his of his. Uh, 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 minions in whatever next plan he's got going on. And then the fact that he talks about this play of the watchmaker's son, which is obviously in reference to Dr. Manhattan and your question earlier about the seventh cavalry uh, dismantling watches and the seventh cavalry reemerging, you know, we hear from Judd, they, we thought they had gone away and now they reemerge and not only they reemerge, but they are, they seem to be, pretty well prepared with pretty heavy duty machine guns and airplanes they and stuff. Plan. So I'm wondering, is this Ozymandias plan? 
if and if this is actually Adrian Veidt, could he be engineering a new squid, for lack of a better term, a new master plan that involves this, you know, funding this terrorist group with the intent of causing something new to happen? Could it be a way to bring Dr. Manhattan back? Could it be a way to bring Dr. Manhattan and destroy him for some reason? I'm wondering if even the 7th Cavalry themselves are being secretly funded by Veidt, and they don't even know that Veidt is the one behind it and possibly putting together some kind of grander plan, even grander than what their own goals are. Um, so that's kind of where, I, again, similar to if, if, if we were to draw one final parallel with the original graphic novel, we find out that Veidt is behind everything with this squid conspiracy. So could the emergence of this, you know, this, this problem of the 7th Cavalry be tied to a greater new conspiracy that Veidt is putting together now that he is once again behind the scenes, declared dead, and appears to be you know, starting something new with this, you know, play called The Watchmaker's Son. Yeah, that makes total sense. And you can also see from a um, from a, a format or a structural sense that if we continue along and he writes this play and we actually see them, perf- like, will this play be a mirror for the events that we see happening in Tulsa? And that's what I started to think whenever they mention a a story within a story Mm -hmm. in a story, it always has to do with the story, right? It's not going to be something different. So that's, and, and, and the idea that you're saying of using these synthetic beings, these, these, um, uh, these, uh, his um, butler and maid yeah, there. His, his servants. Uh-huh. Yeah, that they're stand-ins in a sense for mm-hmm. the, the the Calvary and the masked heroes in some way. I think that that's a great idea. And especially because, again, the entire plot of the comic is the smartest man in the world trying to... Trying to two, outsmart the world, yeah, right? And seeing yeah. two things in conflict... And then causing them to come together because of something different. So it it begs the question, perhaps in this case, he did previously use Dr. Manhattan with the cancer scare. But if he has figured out some way, I like that, to neutralize him, that could the common enemy end up being Dr. Manhattan? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, he, he could very well be funding these groups and telling them, as part of my funding you, you need to collect any and every battery from this outdated technology that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And that may have something to do with something that has to do with, I don't know, bringing Dr. Manhattan back or. And also the whole idea that these batteries, as Angela says, were recalled because they caused cancer. Right. What did they say about Dr. Manhattan? He caused cancer, but he really didn't. Maybe the batteries didn't cause cancer. Maybe Dr. Manhattan said, well, now that I know what my weakness is, I have the opportunity to eradicate it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get rid of these batteries because they're my cancer. Who knows? Again, uh, they're, they're, oh, indeed, this maybe. is where a lot of these questions kind of <laughs> come into play, which brings us to a little segment here, which I want to call it. I was going to call it uh, uh, odds and ends, but I figured since this is Watchmen, uh, why not finish off things talking about this episode's ticks and talks?
All right. So there's my little jingle for our show. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and uh, the uh, uh, one thing to think about is we've talked, we've mentioned Hood of Justice multiple times. He was the first hero who emerged in the world of Watchmen. Um, in the world of Watchmen, though, in the graphic novel, Hooded Justice was apparently gay. He was in a relationship with another hero of his era, Captain Metropolis, in the Minutemen. But the original Silk Spectre, uh, Sally Jupiter, was who pretended to be his girlfriend uh, in order to protect his secret that he was gay. Uh, and though his identity was never revealed, it was uh, revealed throughout the different excerpts of, of writings in the original graphic novel that Hooded Justice was actually an East German uh, pro-Nazi strongman named Rolf Mueller. So this would seem to be in direct contradiction with the idea of Louis Gossett Jr.'s character potentially being Hooded Justice. But one one possible escape hatch that Damon Lindelof has here is that this was all speculation. There was never any proof of who Hooded mm -hmm. Justice was. So maybe this gives them an out to be able to reimagine re the character of Hooded Justice this way. Or, as you and I earlier mentioned, maybe Louis Gossett Jr.'s character was the first Hooded Justice who could have inspired other potential heroes uh, to take on a similar persona later on, such as this other person. And it would make uh, sense that if he was pro-Nazi, mm -hmm. he would not want a black man right. being known as the original. Yeah, so maybe he would have taken on the eight persona, but recreated the character in his own and image. And destroyed the history. Mm -hmm. So it could not, so it would not be known. And it could be also seen here. It's an interesting parallel to the seventh cavalry and Rorschach, right? Taking the original heroes kind of message and twisting it to their own type of, uh, of agenda. Um, if, the, if you were to look at it that way as well. Um, next week, uh, we're also going to meet a, a new character uh, named uh, uh, played by Gene Smart. And she is Laurel Jane uh, Juspesex, who was the uh, second Seal Spectre in the original uh, work, uh, on the original uh, graphic novel. Now she goes by Lori Blake um, uh, because she, uh, as she finds out in the original novel that she is the illegitimate daughter of Sally Jupiter, the original Seal Spectre, and the hero, the comedian, whose name was Edward Blake. Uh, apparently, she has also taken on the code name Comedienne uh, as part as her kind of hero persona in the Watchmen world. Um, and she, uh, last time we saw her in the graphic novel, she was in a relationship with the second Night Owl, uh, Dan Dreberg. So whether or not we will see Dan Dreberg or we will learn whatever happened to him is something that that's left to be seen uh, in the in the next episodes to come. That's good. And that's a nice little, I think that without spoiling anything, that's a good background and intro mm -hmm. to her that, yeah. that material is kind of getting out there. And I think that that gives you an idea to kind of set up in this world, a little bit of what may have happened since, but also what's interesting is the taking of that name because so much about the original Watchmen was how, the abhorrent behavior of the comedian and the right. choices that he made and then how he came to regret them. And also the way in which the relationship between Sally Jupiter, the first still specter, and the comedian started with an attempted mm -hmm. rape. Right. Later on, right. they began, they got to know each other. They and actually they got to know each other. Yep. Yep. 
and and uh, uh, Sil Spectre too, who at, at first kind of resented any association, has learned to kind of accept that side of her. So maybe that plays into the kind of person that she is yeah. now as well. It'd be interesting to see how that plays into her character. And it says something of this world too, right? A mm-hmm. world where it seems that not much has been accepted. She's accepted herself. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, we hear a radio commentator in one scene also giving some kind of background information. He talks about uh, protected lands and you know how there's 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 uh, too many protected lands they're complaining about and not enough places where people can go and continue to develop and hunt and that kind of stuff. They talk about a wait list of six months in order to get a gun. And they also talk about the emergence of Senator Joseph Keene Jr., as a future opponent to President Redford. Now, I, I, this is a character that's going to be appearing in upcoming episodes. And Senator Keene, the father of the of the current Senator Joseph Keene Jr., he is the one who enacted the legislation in the original novel banning government, uh, banning superheroes, banning uh, vigilantes. So, in the original comic book, you hear over and over about the Keene Act. Uh, and so this is now, you know, in the aftermath of after the Keen Act, after the Nixon era, you've now had 30 years of Redford. And now you have uh, the son of that old Senator Keen coming as a counterbalance to the Redford administration, emerging in what appears to be a, a credible threat to uh, the type of world that Redford has set up in this Watchmen universe. Yeah. And again, in the original Watchmen, our fear was from without, right? Russia. Uh-huh. Now it's from within. Now it's from within. Uh, and then uh, the uh, uh, I, I just found it curious, some of the personas that have been taken on by characters uh, in the police force in the original uh, novel, the, the biggest, you know, the biggest threat to the United States was Russia. Now one of the heroes is a police officer named Red Scare, who is Russian or at least of Russian descent. Mm-hmm. So we have a Russian on our side <laughs> fighting along us. Uh, there's also uh, another one whose name is Pirate Jenny. And in the original Watchmen novel, there was a comic within the comic called The Tales of the Black Freighter, which is all about pirates. Uh, the way Alan Moore, the original the author, explained it is that he thought that in a world where superheroes existed for real, uh, superhero comic books would not sell. Because if it's real, why would you make comic books about it? So instead, the popular comic books were pirate comic books. And so I'm wondering if there's a bit of a reference there to the Black Freighter comics with having a superhero who is inspired by pirates. Yeah, and we got into that um, in our original episode that Aaron and I did. We talked extensively about that story and Mm -hmm. the metaphors within it. I did not catch that. So Pirate Jenny, is she the one who's in She's uh, in Archie? She's in Archie with okay, Judd. Cool. Now yep. we know her name. That's Pirate Jenny. Yeah, yep. I was yep. wondering who she was. Mm-hmm. She appears so quickly, but then we do, see, I believe, see her when yep. the, when the police gather to watch the old. And if you reel. look at her, she's basically dressed like a pirate. She has like yes. a like a like a, a a bandana on her head and has a, a funky scarf covering her face. That's so yeah. Cool. Um, and then you know we have uh, Don. We see Don Johnson doing cocaine in the kitchen uh, during the family dinner. Uh, and you had some speculation here that maybe under the Redford administration, l- drugs have been legalized even more so than what we see nowadays here with the legalization of marijuana. Yeah, I thought that was something quick that I'd forgot to mention in the mm-hmm. last episode 
which was that the casual nature in which he does that, of course, he's the police chief. Yeah. And, and then his, not only does his wife kind of see it, but then Angela, Sister Knight says, you know, looks at it too. Yeah, yeah. So it's not, it seems to me that if you follow, one thing that we can extrapolate is we can think about the kind of key issues that our country seems to fight about mm-hmm. and where it falls along political lines. And of course, one of the great liberal causes is the legalization of drugs and seeing drugs, people with drug addiction, not as criminals, but as victims of yeah. a disease. And yep. you would think if that type of thinking with the, with it looks like a kind of a change, I guess, in the second amendment or stricter gun laws, uh, the way the police act, refredations, that one of these things would probably be the legalization of drugs. Yep. So or, my, or at least a decriminalization of the exa- or decrim- True. So I yep. would think, I mean, it would be pretty rash for mm-hmm. cocaine to be one of those. Yeah. But it was at one time quite casually yeah. used. That's right. That's in right. In the Western setting as well, too, very yeah. often. So I thought that it was kind of an interesting, quick thing that they don't make much too much of, but I think it falls in line with some of the other social changes that we've seen. Yeah. And uh, that's, I think that concludes my my deep dive there. That's uh, awesome. So, <laughs> that's uh, great, people- man. Yeah, sure thing. And you picked up on a lot of the stuff that I hadn't even thought of. Your perspective is awesome. Just such a, there's there's so much when I started taking notes too, because when when you're thinking about it, you're not only thinking about what's happening in the show as you're watching it, but what is this world, how it relates to the comic. Now that we know it's a remix and things might be different, what is a conspiracy? What's not? So mm-hmm. it's, it's just so much fun. Um, yeah. We've got some feedback. I want to thank everyone for sending it in. You can get yours in at dvrpodcast at gmail.com. We're going to be recording every Thursday about midnight Eastern. So if you get it in before then, we will try to read it. And we have edited a little bit for time and such, uh, but we do thank everyone who sent it in. I'm going to start off. With a little piece of feedback from DJ Timothy Hinesworth. That's right, Tim Hines of Another Week Podcast with DJ and Reddy. Go listen to that. Uh, And he says, I'd like to begin with saying I'm completely into a show that I apparently know so little of, which I thought I knew so much of. It's very refreshing to get this, as Mr. Lindelof calls it, a remix. I also love that we're all in the same exact place. It's pure speculation and podcast fodder. I have an Easter egg I picked up that I'd like to share. When Angela is entering the back room of her bakery, her entry code on the keypad is 1985. The first Watchmen appearance was in DC Spotlight, later to be created into its own comic run in 1986. Keep up the outstanding work. One love. Thanks for picking that up, DJ. I'm sure there's like... I put an Easter egg article in um, the last uh, episode show notes. There's so many of these little references and I like that. They're just putting them in. It doesn't have to be so major, but yeah, no, it's just, yeah. If you pick up on them, great. But if not, it just adds to those of us who like to geek out about all these little details. Yeah. And it's good to know DJ that you are enjoying this sense of, of mystery and what's happening because I know Roberto, both you and I are obviously fans of Westworld. We host podcasts about it. So I enjoy that. And I think that there are a lot of people 
who enjoy this type of show where you have to pay attention and you're picking up these little nooks and crannies, some people find it frustrating, but to mm-hmm. each their own. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's you get to enjoy it as a show, but also you get to enjoy it as a kind of game or or yes. puzzle at the same time. Yep. So, um, okay, you want me to read the next one here sure. from Bill? Okay, Bill Kava, I hope I'm pronouncing that yes. right. Uh, I'm thinking Vite's servants are robots. I hope it ends it, it ends there because I'm worried that we'll go down a Westworld rabbit hole <laughs> where we'll be wondering who's a robot and who's not. I love, love Westworld, and I can't imagine Damon going that route. That being said, with a smiley face, if Angela actually got killed during the White Knight in Vietnam, and if her age was frozen there, she would line up with being that baby girl who escaped from Tulsa. Tulsa. Vate, the smartest man in the world, gives Dr. Manhattan the robotic technology, and he goes back in time to reanimate Angela. Oh, my God. She becomes the original hooded justice from that point on. Please tell me no effing way this is happening. LOL. <laughs> well, you know, I'll, I'll I'll concede you the theory just because it's the first episode, but it sounds pretty out yeah. there. <laughs> and I think the white, I think that um, she was injured during the white night when she was an adult. Um, that had That's happened. Right. Yeah, that happened when she was an adult. But this yeah. idea, um, this is going to come up in a later email that we have from Andy. The idea that that little girl is Angela somehow is quite intriguing. It's intriguing. Yeah, and especially with Dr. Manhattan. And I mean, there is the awesome, I believe it's, uh, I think it's issue number six or seven. That's the Dr. Manhattan backstory and that where he's telling things and he's in time, but he's moving through time. Right. is one of the most interesting kinds. It's so famous and it's so well told that it brings yeah. up these thoughts of what is time. And Damon yeah. loves that. And there are some limitations to Manhattan's ability to travel through time. I, I, I believe it has to be through his own timeline. And when they ask mm. him, you know, can you see the future? It's like, I can see, he can see his future, right. but he can't see other people's future. So it's kind of an interesting, he's got some interesting limitations, uh, but yeah, I mean, at this point, like I said, I'm, I'm willing to speculate on anything right now uh, and we'll see where it goes from there. <laughs> but I do. But Bill, who's a patron and a friend, a great dude, visited me last summer here, or this past summer here in Portland. This uh, I love this type of thinking because sure. as, a, as a fan of uh, crackpot theories, the, the existence of Dr. Manhattan in this story just uh, leaves it open to crazy stuff and Vite too. It yeah. leaves it open to this kind of crazy conspiracy theories. And I thought that was kind of fun. Yeah. It's a great idea. All right. So we got a, we got, a, got an email from another patron, grandpa James, who also sent us a fun little picture about, uh, cause there was a, a line in the leftovers about bleach. And then they kind of riff off of the bleach thing in this one too. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Smells like bleach. I uh, says, hello, Axel. I really enjoyed Watchmen last night, and I watched the encore right after. I read the graphic novel back in the 80s, but I didn't watch the movie. From the beginning scene until the ending credits, I was captivated by the story of this new world and the people who inhabit it. Take Judd Crawford, Don Johnson's character. He seems to be a good guy, but is he really? I will be listening and watching. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah. There's We had a little theory there on Wednesday that... 
and and I was talking uh, with Heath and I had someone else I was chatting with who was saying it seemed like he when he was putting his clothes on, he was accepting a fate. In mm-hmm. a way, the way they showed him putting the outfit on and, and not accepting a – he didn't get his guys to go with him. He told right. his wife he would, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. So, so who, He may it, have been off to do something that, that he wasn't supposed to be doing. Is he also part of this plan, right? That's why I liked your idea yeah. of the puppet master. It could be on both sides. Well, and, and look at let's look at another parallel to the original graphic novel. In the original graphic novel, the catalyst for the story is the death of the comedian. And the comedian is presented as an unsympathetic character. And as the course of the story progresses, he becomes sympathetic. Yes. We get to understand. Maybe this is the opposite. Maybe here we're starting with a sympathetic character who kicks off the story. And we're going to learn some things that are not so sympathetic about Judd. Right. And, and I referenced the uh, conversation, which I thought was important with the uh, the officer who was shot's wife, where mm-hmm. she makes a kind of like, why are the cops wearing masks? Why are you hiding? Why are you accepting this? You know, yeah. how much of this was maybe his idea? We still don't know how much this extends to the entire country. You know, how many other masked heroes are there working with police officers? Is it really, is, why are we even set in Tulsa, Oklahoma? Yeah. Is it a centralized power place or something or, you know, who knows? Yeah. And by the way, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, the, at the beginning of the episode, we also see, or early on in the episode, Judd and his wife are at a performance of Oklahoma. Mm Mm-hmm. And in Oklahoma, there's actually a song titled Poor Judd is Dead. So I don't know if there's, a, again, a reference there to... Uh, and that's the, the song they play at the end of the... And, at the Yeah, end. and it's the song they play. Uh, so it's really interesting that that is part of the, you know, it, they're feeding these messages to us constantly throughout the whole piece. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's just like Damon to have named the character so he could use that song. Of course, of course. Um, so do you want me to, why don't you read this next one, which is short and then I'll take the last one. All right, cool. So this is from Sandy or newbie Doos, as we know. Uh, thank you for writing in. Always great to hear from you. I really like the look of the show and the cinematography, the overall plot and the characters were a little hard for me to understand and get into initially, but I'm still very interested and will try to keep watching to understand more of the universe of this show. I find the themes of the show, the society and politics, very interesting. That's Sandy doesn't have much of a background in the show, but that's coming from uh, I did my initial reaction with Justin because I think it is interesting in this day and age, having both of us covered Game of Thrones too, you do have people who come completely new to this material and yeah. who will never read the comic, even though it's short and we suggest you do, uh, or watch the movie or anything, and they're just going to watch the show. So yeah. it's interesting that in that respect, where you have some people saying, oh, there's, they've inserted this politics, which is, I mean, that's what the whole thing was about originally. But you can have someone who's attracted to the show and Mm -hmm. is more interested in it by the way it uses those themes more heavily than perhaps like the comic book stuff. Um, And and of course, the cinematography, I have to mention, I even thought about doing like something where I just like watch it and talk about it to myself. 
uh, as a podcast, but it was really great. Like the, the, the overhead shot of the car, all of like the drone shots, they look very, there's so many comic book type shots that are in it too. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was solid as far from a production standpoint, it was a solid, solid pilot. You cannot totally. take anything away from that. Uh, you know, this is interesting because it's, it's unlike Game of Thrones, you know, Game of Thrones was being adapted directly from the story, but this is adapted. This is a sequel yeah. to a comic book story. Um, That's so remixed. It, it's a, it's a real interesting ask of the audience to be like, you're going to pick up on a story that has a, this entire 12 issue story arc that came before or 13 issue story arc that came before and expected to kind of pick up here. Now I did read an article on IGN that says that the structure uh, for, for many of the reviewers out there who have started to uh, get, to get advanced copies of the series, I believe they released up through episode six to to a lot of the reviewers. And from what I have heard without spoiling anything is that they do structure the ongoing episodes of the season to give more of a background. So I think for folks like Sandra, if you're feeling a little lost right now, you might want to stick with it for the next few episodes because apparently they do a pretty good job from what I understand of backfilling what you need to know of that past history. That's awesome. Uh, And that that excites me because it's a remix. So we want to learn how do they interpret those, right? Again, like the Rorschach's journal thing, how we're going to learn about it is going to be just as interesting to us. So that's why I think it's like doubly cool that some things might be different. I like that. Uh, That being said, you know also that there's there's fairly easy access to the original Watchmen story. They did a a graphic, uh, a motion comic adaptation, which is on YouTube. And you can you can find it there, uh, the whole thing. It's a little long, but if you just want to kind of sit back and listen to it and kind of almost like doing an audiobook, that would be a great way to get filled in on that. Or uh, if you have a library account, check if your library has uh, the Hoopla digital service. The entire Watchmen run is on Hoopla Digital, available. Uh, to, it's an online platform that includes graphic novels. So uh, there are ways, uh, easy, inexpensive ways to access the original story if you want to uh, get into it uh, while you're uh, experiencing the TV show. Great suggestion. Always love the local library. Shout out to Joe Bear, who works at a library. There you go. Shout out to Joe Bear. All right, let's finish off with Andy's thoughts. Andy said, I absolutely loved the first episode of Watchmen. You guys wondered if the Tulsa riots were even taught in schools. My wife, who is a high school history teacher, has heard of them. But as far as she knows, they are currently not taught in Minnesota schools. I really hope we see more of Don Johnson. His performance really surprised me. Who is Judd? Is it possible he is Night Owl? He seems to know how to fly his ship. An owl mug is in his office. And a copy of Under the Hood is on his desk. I don't think he is, but I'm very curious to know his backstory. I'm not entirely convinced Jeremy Irons is Ozymandias. It wouldn't surprise me if he ends up being someone else. Something just seems off about those scenes with his servants. I find it curious that he only that the only mentions of Manhattan and Ozymandias are in the media. I have a feeling that Manhattan is not on Mars and Vate is not dead. Did anyone else get a Superman vibe in the opening sequence? A baby escapes as her home is destroyed and family killed and is later found in rural America. Even though the timeline doesn't seem to match up, I think the little girl is Angela, who will be this world's second, quote unquote, real superhero after Dr. Manhattan. I think this will explain her age. 
Maybe she's immortal or she can time travel. Oh, and Ocalrissian coming through yeah. with the great theories. I love this stuff. Let's start off. That's interesting about the Tulsa riots. Uh, Aaron and I had talked about that. And yeah, not I, I didn't learn about it in school. Aaron said that he did you learn about it in school? I had not in school. I had read about it uh, later on. I remember uh, running across some That's articles. That's how I learned about it. Yeah. I don't know if it was in graduate school or just some, you know, just uh, reading something that I found. Uh, but I had not. And I, I even when I read it, I don't think I understood the gravity uh, mm-hmm. and the level of of uh, of tra- the, the um, you know how tragic the event was until I saw the this depiction here and and went back and researched more after seeing this episode. And that's great that people um, are doing that, and also the aspect of it being the Black Wall Street too. Yeah, uh, aware of where growth could have happened. It was a way of it was a way of it's representational of an act that's not only terror a terrorist racial act but an economic act yeah and it's interesting to i i I went into some discussion boards where some people were writing the show off calling it uh you know basically calling it uh sjw crap and how can they believe that something like this could have ever happened in the united states (laughs) and then people writing back saying dude this actually did happen so there are people out there who have been literally shocked by learning this through uh, this TV show. And a lot of this comes because Lindelof, one of the inspirations and reasons he wanted to do this uh, series is because he, uh, a few years back, uh, read an essay by uh, uh, Tanisi Tanisi Coates, yes, who is a, a African American author. He has actually have written has written comic books. He wrote a, a acclaimed run of uh, Black Panther not yeah. too long ago, uh, but he wrote an essay called "The Case for Reparations," in which he goes into his, uh, among other things, an explanation of the Tulsa riots, uh, and so that this is part of the reason that Lindelof grabbed onto the idea of writing this story and setting it in the Watchmen context. Um, so, uh, yeah, so definitely uh, go, go seek out information about that to learn more about it because it's sadly history is typically written uh, by those in power. And when those in power uh, don't want you to know about certain things that happened in the past, we don't, we don't learn about those in school. Yeah. What do you think about what he has to say about Judd being Night Owl? Yeah, it's very possible. Although, uh, you know, I, I, I think if anything, maybe he had a relationship with Night Owl. Maybe he knows of him, and has that's why he's taken on. Uh, you know, the police has taken on his technology and stuff. Um, you know, uh, I guess, it, but it's very possible. And maybe when we meet uh, 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 Julie Blake uh, n- next episode, that might give us some context about what happened to Dan Dreberg. Uh, you know, it it would ha- they would have to explain why he has a different name and uh, yes, you know definitely. other things like that. Um, but uh, but yeah, and, uh, and who, maybe he 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 was inspired by Night Owl and j- just like uh, like he was inspired by the original Night Owl, uh, that, the way Dan Dreber was. So uh, it's possible that it's just kind of a continuation of that idea. Yeah, um, he's Night Owl three. But exactly, yeah. Uh, but but my guess is that we will uh, we will begin to piece together where Night Owl is once we uh, we encounter uh, uh, Julie Blake next next week. And um, Andy makes an interesting point here about the, how the newspaper is the only mention uh, we see Ozymandias in the newspaper and Doctor Manhattan on the TV. 
Yeah. And um, he said here that he had, had a feeling that maybe this is not real. That's not where they are. And it kind of plays into the idea of conspiracies. Do you believe the news? Do you believe yeah. what you read? So I, I think it's, it's, it's very plausible and it's smart to call into question anything we hear on the show as yeah. possibly not be just a way, like you saying, the person in power wants it to be told. And, and you know, those scenes in in the the, the supposedly Ozymandias scenes, they could be in a completely different time period. They could be in a True. completely different location. I mean, uh, who knows where Mars. where that is happening or when it's happening? <laughs> yeah, uh, they 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 don't seem I mean, right now that the way that they're playing it off seems to be parallel to what we're seeing. But who knows how that exactly is playing out? So it'd be very interesting to see uh, in, in what ways is our reality being altered by what we're seeing on the screen. And let's not forget one of the greatest reveals in my mind, the history of television is when we meet Desmond in Lost. And when we meet Desmond, we have no idea where he is or what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then it's revealed where he is and we're shocked. So in the same respect, using this similar narrative device in, in this story, we have no idea where, yeah. when, or how uh, these scenes are happening. Yeah. Um, for, for all we know that he, we could be seeing maybe sometime earlier in the, earlier in the timeline, the events of Ozymandias setting up the new whatever he's doing that is that is evolving in parallel at the same time uh, in, in the events with the seventh yeah. cavalry and all that but in actuality that's his setup prior to maybe yeah. the watchmaker's son is the story that we're seeing of angela and and all this stuff exactly. playing out. right it's, he's a flash forward he's a flash forward yeah yep. that's that could be that way too and mm -hmm. uh, the last thing i wanted to mention is Andy brings up the whole idea of Angela too being um, being that baby, and he brings up the idea which I found fascinating that she could be the world's second real superhero because meta human, very, yeah, yeah, it's very oh, I like it, meta human. Mm -hmm. um, I guess you didn't you had to say meta human because there's a copyright on mutant. You weren't allowed to say that, right? <laughs> it's actually it's actually the term DC Comics uses to refer to uh, to people with superpowers. If you and watch they, any of the CW yeah. shows and any of that stuff, they always refer to them as meta humans. Yep. Uh, I love that. Yeah, the Flash. Um, uh -huh. But it bring because it's important to remember that Doctor Manhattan is the only one that actually has any powers. All the rest of them are Batman like. Caped yeah. Crusaders, right? Um, but the idea that Angela, that we could be seeing a second coming, that perhaps even now, follow me here, could it be that Angela was somehow made that way, like like Bill was saying, by some sort of intervention by Ozymandias and Doctor Manhattan, that well, she's a result of something else like like the squid was right like she's an offshoot of that in some way well if you remember the, some of the last lines of dr manhattan when he left earth at the end of the original comic book to vite is maybe i will go make some new life somewhere yeah a so, new universe a new life who knows? And, maybe he went back in time and implanted some 
thing in the past to become this hero in the future. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And or maybe and in and two because so much of the first Watchmen uh, was about the way that Doctor Manhattan was completely. Um, just blank. He had no emotion. He had no involvement. He was completely detached from making yeah. any type of decisions. And thus it made him open to being used by Nixon and being, and also the way he was attacked by people saying you caused cancer. His, mm-hmm. his response was to run away, right? right. The way that he ignored Silk yeah, Spectre he- for so long. He became a recluse, basically. Yeah. He, 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 in, in a way, humanity became so insignificant from his perspective that he had no attachment and no empathy. And it wasn't until, right, the thing that brought him back was that he found out was when she found out and reacted to the fact that the comedian was her father. Mm-hmm. And it was that human story, that emotion that allowed him to have an entryway into understanding humans and wanting to return at the end of the comic. So could we see here in this story that he's fully made a decision to intervene? Possibly. He's I mean, now he... said, I can't stand back anymore. I must intervene in human affairs. Right, right. So maybe and what it... they need is their own hero. And is his presence in Mars, uh, has he been in Mars for these 30 years? I mean, at the end of the graphic novel, he said he was going to go explore the universe. Is his presence in Mars a recent return? You know, and so where has he been? Is is this setting up for what's going to happen? Uh, What he's got in mind? Who knows? Amazing. Well, we're going to find out, man. This has been now. Oh, I do want to mention that I think in, in subsequent episodes, We'll watch the trailer and talk about it right. a little bit, but this this is all me. I never like to watch the trailers that do like coming this season or multiple episodes, so we're not going to do it this week. I apologize, but I think next week, if it's just for the following week, I'll watch the trailer right before we record this show, and uh, and we'll speculate on it in that way. That'd be fun. Yeah, that sounds good to me because, uh, yeah, some sometimes, uh, especially with those uh, coming this season, there might be some spoilers that we don't want to we don't want right. to begin speculating on a little too too prematurely. So we'll we'll pick up on the trailers when we have the week to week ones. Excellent. And now, thanks everyone for listening, Roberto. Thank you so much for talking so much and for and for bringing us through the episode this is a really long episode i think probably in the future they'll be a bit shorter we won't have to do so much establishing and introduction stuff but gosh i could probably go on for a couple more hours <laughs> this this show has really got me thinking and i'm so excited to to have something like this on the mind and to cuz it is like a puzzle that you keep kind of in the back of your head and you kind of think about it and it, it kind of you know it gets that mind state moving you know that's right. Anything that gets us speculating and, and thinking uh, about possibilities um, is always a, a, a wel- welcome to me. Uh, I guess the only the only concern, of course, is when we come up with things that are maybe too ambitious and then our expectations <laughs> are, are not quite met down the road. So we will try to temper it in, in the weeks to come. Yes, we'll try to practice non-attachment as well. If something doesn't <laughs> like Doctor Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, if it doesn't happen, it didn't. Ha- it's okay. Yeah, we were wrong or right. Nobody cares. It's just about fun. Well, um, 
Roberto, do you want to give some final words, how maybe people can find you or kind of sum us up and then I'll take us out? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, to find me, I think right now the easiest thing is to uh, just find me on Twitter. I'm at Puerto Geekin. That's Puerto like Puerto Rico and Geekin, G-E-E-K-A-N. Uh, that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. Um, I have a couple of podcasts that I do, but both of them are on hiatus right now. A Pot of Casts, which is our Game of Thrones podcast with my good friend, uh, A. Proctor. And Radio Westworld with John Whitford. That one will be picking up uh, early next year when Westworld returns. Um, so uh, between now and then, uh, just follow me on Twitter at Porto Geekin if you want to touch base with me. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you, everyone, for downloading and listening. You can find out more about us at DVR Podcast. And don't forget, email us. We want to hear your feedback, DVRpodcast at gmail.com. I want to thank Bill, Andy, Sandy, James, and DJ Tim for their feedback tonight. Thanks for downloading again. Hey, leave us a review, a written review on Apple Podcasts or whatever. Subscribe. We really do appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. Have a great evening. Peace out. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, tick tock.